brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Holy hell and hallelujah, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and even though I've gotten about as lucky as a person can get when it comes to making the best from the rise of the internet and the digital revolution, I definitely still have a lot of concerns. Obviously, technology, like any other tool, can be a double-edged sword, but it seems that lately the side-facing society has been getting sharpened a little more than the other. Behaviorist think tanks and social engineers have crafted our phones to be psychologically addictive and manipulative. Social media has been thoroughly weaponized. We've been drained of our ability to communicate in person, and a swarm of unhealthy digital signals surrounds us 24-7. Yes, like a frog in a pot of water, the heat is turning up with the rise of increasingly sophisticated algorithms aimed at tightening the screws of control through the devices we have been so quick to adopt. What's also curious is that when we really get under the hood of this machine, we see a scary level of synergy between where we seem to be going and a strange transhumanist philosophy that jives with the esoteric principles of the elite secret religion. Might there be an esoteric or even spiritual context that most people will never realize? Could even autism be part of this digital dystopia? Well, after reading the works of today's guest, Wayne McRoy, I'm starting to think it might be possible. If you haven't heard him dropping knowledge on the conspiratorial podcast scene, let me just say that Wayne is an independent researcher who revisited the rabbit hole after a strange UFO sighting sent him on a path of studying that phenomenon which, as many of us know, quickly branches out into subjects we did not expect to enter the fray, and now he joins us to talk about the threads on the conspiratorial cardigan that concern him most, which are laid out in his two books, The Alchemical Tech Revolution, Fulfilling Ancient Esoteric Agendas Through the Use of High Technology, and his most recent work, The Autism Epidemic, Transhumanism's Dirty Little Secret. So hold on to your hats, people. The transhumanistic tyranny teacher and autism agenda educator trying to keep us alive past 2045. Wayne, my man, welcome to the higher side. Thanks, Greg. I'm a little humbled by that introduction. That was awesome, man. <laughs> Appreciate it. Ah, no worries. Just trying to do you justice because you have done some deep research here. And I think this is really going to connect some dots for people between a lot of things we see and raise the alarm about, but maybe haven't been able to 
see with this level of clarity. Autism in particular, because all due respect to those people and families affected, you can kind of see how the characteristics of autism, things like lack of eye contact, social withdrawal, bluntness, lack of social awareness, and even the savant-level intelligence in some cases, it sort of mirrors what you'd think an engineered living AI might be like. You can see just a similar shape to some of these subjects. And you start off the book saying that you have two children that are on the spectrum, and our hearts go out to you and your family because we know this sort of thing can be tough. But you also have an insight into this condition that most others don't, which really has probably been quite helpful in writing this book, I assume, right? All right. Yeah, I have two kids on the autism spectrum, so it's kind of given me a unique insight into this whole thing. I have a 10-year-old son who's on the spectrum and a 7-year-old daughter who's on the spectrum as well. They're both on the higher functioning end of the spectrum, so, you know, they're, they're what you would call Asperger's or identify more as Asperger's on the end of the autism spectrum. Now, how that works is Asperger's syndrome used to be diagnosed as a separate disorder from autism, but since they updated the DSM manual to the DSM-5, it's all categorized together under autism spectrum disorder. So what that DSM manual is, is this is the go-to manual that all the psychology and medical professionals use to identify different mental illnesses and, you know, different things like that. So uh, they've kind of put this all together under autism spectrum disorder now. And that's kind of where I come from. My kids are both on the higher functioning end. And in my research, I've actually discovered that that seems to be a thing that's happening now is there's an increase in the percentage of these kids on the autism spectrum that are being diagnosed on the higher functioning end. And the ones on the lower functioning end, that number seems to be decreasing. So that kind of suggests to me that there's something going on, that, that something is driving it in this direction. So that suggests to me that autism could possibly be an engineered epidemic. Mm. Yeah, so that's super interesting. And we're going to get into the nuance of seeing the data and these trends change because it isn't the same condition that it used to be. But you do note that like so many other parents, you saw the changes occur in at least one of your children right after vaccination. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I could tell you about that. My son, he was three months old at the time. We took him to the doctors for, you know, his routine checkup, and they suggested, you know, get this DTaP shot. So we gave him the DTaP shot because at that time, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I, I thought anybody who talked about vaccines as being something harmful was just, you know, either off their rocker or misinformed or something like that, listening to Jenny McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And uh, what had happened is that very same night, we took him home, and he was listless and lethargic, and he started to have a gray tinge to his skin, and he was unresponsive. So we ran him to the emergency room, and he almost died in front of our eyes. He had a, a reaction to that DTaP shot. But by the time the doctors in the ER saw him, he had actually made a miraculous recovery and was looking much better. He was drinking his bottle and looked relatively fine. So they sent us home, and, you know, pretty much nothing came of it. And then uh, a couple weeks later... My wife was talking to a friend of ours who's a nurse, and, you know, it came up in conversation what had happened. And she said she'd seen that happen before, and that's a sign of autism. Well, I didn't think anything much of it until 
we started to notice some things had changed with him because he was up until that point a very happy, healthy, on-target baby when everything was normal. So we started to notice he wasn't making eye contact with us, and he drooled excessively. And this was a major problem right up until he was probably about three years old. In fact, we have old family portraits of him, like when he was two, where you could actually see the, the drool stain in his shirt because that's how heavily he drooled. We had to keep a bib on him all the time. So these were the first things that we noticed. And that, and the other thing that became apparent rather quickly was with the autism, he has a comorbidity of ADHD. So he was extremely hyperactive. In fact, the doctor classified it as extreme ADHD. So this was the first and toughest and most obvious problem we had to deal with. He was climbing out of the crib at nine months old and you know, he was quite the escape artist. We had to put special locks high up on the doors to keep him from running out the door. It was bad. It was hard to deal with. So my heart goes out to any parents who deal with any form of autism, mm. whether it's on the higher end or the lower end of the spectrum. Yes, I agree. And these personal testimonies are so important. There is a pattern that repeats. And the longer people want to ignore these stories you know, the longer we're going to be dealing with these problems. The movie Vaxxed is so great at stacking up the personal testimonies from parents. And no, these people aren't doctors, but they know their children. They're capable of seeing change or regression. And yet the wider culture just doesn't want to listen. And it's really, really sad. Right. And I, I see that as one of the bigger problems and issues in our society right now is people put way too much stock in titles and degrees. And that's something that I think needs to stop. I mean, just being a regular human being with common sense, you could look and see and know when something's wrong. You don't need to be a doctor or have a doctorate degree to be able to say, yeah, there's there's something wrong here. And that's the thing. People just put way too much stock in this whole thing with titles and degrees and stuff like that. And that all ties back to, you know, the the Middle Ages to that system where the noble people they got their contract from the king that they could do business and stuff like that. That's where this degree system comes from, that he gives you permission that you could do business. And, and that's where that whole thing stems from, even right up into modern day. But now we you know, have these big universities that say you're qualified to do this. And if you don't have their backing behind it, then you're considered to be, you know, not somebody to listen to. And I think in this day and age, you know, with the internet and all of this knowledge and stuff, this knowledge base online everywhere, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case anymore. And and I could see with the whole transhuman thing coming where this is going to change because they're talking about being able to upload an education directly into your brain, like within seconds rather than years and years of study. So that's all going to change. That whole house of cards is going to fall sooner or later. But right now, there's just so much money and everything tied up in it that they still push this whole idea that you have to have this degree in order to talk about this and have your opinion heard. Mm. Amen, man. And to elaborate on the setup here and use a quote from your book, you say, this autism epidemic is a vehicle for something more, more than just a desperate random set of symptoms. It is a blueprint for the destruction of the human will. The means of absolute control of the mind. There is an entire social engineering campaign associated with it too. And that is the heart of what we're going to talk about. But to get there, people could probably use a little history lesson on autism or at least some of the context that you've gathered from your research. What else would you say to lay a good base here? 
All right. Well, we could go back and look at the origins of where autism comes from, and then we could discuss the social engineering campaign that goes with it. Mm. That'd probably be a good place to start. Perfect. So autism, the first use of the word autism actually came in 1911 by a, uh, I believe he was a Swiss doctor who came up with that term first, and he called it infantile autism, and he used it to describe a subset of symptoms in a schizophrenic patient. So this was the first use of the word autism, and that came in 1911, but it wasn't really its own individual diagnosis until 1943 with the work of Leo Kant when he identified autism as what it is and identified it as a unique disorder from schizophrenia. So that came about in 1943, but it really didn't become popularized as a diagnosis until sometime later, well into the 1960s. Because up until that point, until the 1960s, it was basically categorized as schizophrenia because most doctors didn't recognize it as a condition. They just thought it was a subset of symptoms that related to schizophrenia, especially when they saw it in children. They kind of thought of it as a precursor condition for schizophrenia. So they didn't identify it as autism. So there's not a lot on the record for autism up until about the 1960s or so. So it's kind of hard to compare data from now till those times, but that's about where we could start the data tracking is in the 1960s, and you could tell where the numbers go from there. They really start to escalate starting in the 1990s and right up into present day, and now it's an epidemic. I mean, let's make no mistake about it. It's an epidemic. So from there, we could look at what exactly is it could be causing this. So I did a little digging in my research, and I, I made a little correlation going back to the late 1800s and early 1900s that kind of coincides with this rise in people identifying these symptoms and these symptoms coming about. And what this correlation is, is the development of the aluminum industry. Mm. So with that, you know, early on, there were these byproducts that were pollutants in the atmosphere caused from this manufacture of aluminum. And it's been shown that these pollutants can actually have neurological conditions associated with them. So I think that's where it first appeared, is back in the very early 1900s, late 1800s. And there's nothing in the, the historical records about autism or autism-like symptoms up until that point. But to go along with it, now let's look at this social engineering campaign that I talk about, and it's a multi-tiered social engineering campaign. There's people in positions of authority right now who are trying to make it appear as if autism has been with mankind all along and has been an important part in the evolution of mankind. So they're actually going back and rewriting history and posthumously accrediting autism to people, important historical figures, with absolutely no evidence to support it, but they're doing it anyway to try and make it appear as if autism has been with mankind through all of history, and it's a good thing. So they'll just say, Albert Einstein had autism, Charles Darwin had autism, Isaac Newton had autism, and they have nothing to back this up. I mean, there's no way to really know, going back as far as Isaac Newton or before then, if these people even were ascribed to having these personality traits that they're giving to them. So they're just going ahead and saying this and trying to make it appear as if autism is a good thing. And along with this, you know, rewriting of history to make it appear as if autism has been with us all along, 
They're also shifting from autism awareness, which was a big social engineering campaign, to autism acceptance now. And that's where we're at right now. That's the big thing they're pushing right now. They're trying to make it a socially normal thing, autism. And it's on the increase even still. The last official statistics that were put out by the CDC say one in 59 has autism. And those numbers came in 2014. So it's likely much higher now. And those numbers are actually from survey year 2006, if I remember correctly. Mm. So one in 59 people with autism, that's, that's just a staggering number. Right. And it's so like this social engineering campaign is really difficult to pin down. It's kind of in a gray area because, like you said, there's no way to know if these people who died before many of us were born had any kind of condition. And you threw out a couple of names there, other ones you list in the book, Stanley Kubrick, Nikola Tesla, uh, Mozart, Michelangelo, Lewis Carroll. It's just like you're really just picking people that are exceptional in our history and telling people, hey, look, they probably had autism. And it's just a, a strange thing. It does definitely make it seem like the condition has been around a long time, even if it's been recently invented. And they get to kind of hide in the ambiguity of the way people think of our medical history and the history of diagnosis. And so it's really one of those things that is going to confuse a lot of people. Right. And this confusion is a lot of the problem, too, because a lot of people, if you tell them, oh, autism's on the rise, you know, it's astronomical compared to what it was like, say, when I was a child growing up in the 1980s, we had in the school I went to when I was in elementary school, we had two children in the special needs program in the entire school at that time. And now it's like it's unbelievable how it's escalated. But people will say, oh, that's just because they have better diagnosing tools and stuff now. No, that's not true. Hmm. If that was true, then we would have a whole lot of adults running around right now on the autism spectrum, like, you know, a vast more numbers than what there really are. So that's not the case. It's not just better diagnostic tools. There's more to it than that. This is actually on the increase, which suggests to me that there's some kind of environmental factors involved with this. So that's where we start from. And the big environmental factor that I see over and over and over again in every facet of my research I've done is aluminum. Mm -hmm. Aluminum is the big link with this. So if I could figure this out, why don't the doctors realize this? Yes, man. I'm right there with you. I had an interview with Del Bigtree, a vaccine researcher who, in his own show, interviewed the expert who's considered the best when it comes to studying aluminum and its effects. And he straight up said, in terms of Alzheimer's, which is another area where we see it, he says, no contact with aluminum, no Alzheimer's. It's that simple. And it's really kind of messed up. People need to get Aluminum cans, aluminum foil even out of their house, because I've heard a lot of people talking about just the history of that as well. And we're told Alzheimer's is this genetic condition. Well, you know, families have the same habits. So if you're drinking soda out of aluminum cans, drinking beer out of aluminum cans, covering your acidic pasta sauce with aluminum that's leaching into your food, Surprise, surprise, multiple generations are affected by the same condition, but we can probably chalk up a lot of autism and Alzheimer's to aluminum poisoning, which has now gone from just cans and aluminum foil 
to nanoparticulates in the sky and injections in the first few years of life. Right, along with the food. It's in the food as well. I mean, yeah. this stuff, we're, we're inundated with aluminum. And like you were saying, they cite a genetic factor with Alzheimer's. They do the same thing with autism. And this is partially true, and this is what causes confusion. And this is where, you know, they're really kind of missing the boat because they say, oh, it's genetic. Well, yes, that's partially true because my research has found that many people on the autism spectrum share several different gene mutations, the most notable being a mutation on the MTHFR gene, which this is a gene that regulates methylation in the body. So what this does is this is the gene that allows your body to be able to eliminate heavy metals from your body. So if your body has a reduced capacity of eliminating these heavy metals, if you're being injected with a large portion of, say, aluminum nanoparticles, then your body is not going to process it out like somebody who doesn't have this gene mutations would. So this causes a whole other set of problems, and this could be part of the reason for the onset of some of these autism symptoms. Same thing with Alzheimer's. I think it's part and parcel of the same thing going on. It just the symptoms display differently in different age groups with different levels of immune system immunity. Yes, man. Well said. And I wanted to step back to that history a little bit where autism used to be lumped in with schizophrenia and then it got separated out. You mentioned in the book that the person who did that was recruited and funded by the Macy Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. And I'm way less familiar with the Macy Foundation, but is it safe to say that when you look at this history and the manipulation that went on, we're seeing a lot of the same old interests, the same old think tanks, the same old behaviorists and social engineers, and the money train goes right back to these places. Is that the case? Uh, that's the case with everything I've ever researched. The money always ties back the same place. The Macy Foundation, they became famous from the 1946 Macy conferences, which this is the start of the cybernetics group. This is where cybernetics comes from. Mm. And this is actually a very important facet in what we're talking about today. Most people won't realize that. We should probably go ahead and, and like kind of define certain terms so people understand what we're talking about. Sure. The first one being autism. Okay. Autism is a spectrum disorder. So what that means is that People with autism, they have all different kinds of symptoms and combinations of symptoms from this. No two people on the spectrum have the same symptoms or, or have the same capacities. So this kind of makes it very difficult to diagnose, first of all, but there are some common traits that go along with it. And you mentioned some of them earlier, that being, you know, the uh, lack of social skills, lack of being able to make eye contact, lack of empathy, a hard time communicating, repetitive behaviors, things of that nature. This is basically what the standard definition of autism is. If people have these certain types of behaviors and difficulties, they could be considered on the autism spectrum. But there's a whole gamut. There's over, I think, 500 different possible symptom combinations or something that people could have. So everyone's affected a little differently. So that basically is what autism is. And early on, in the early days, autism was basically lumped together with schizophrenia because schizophrenics oftentimes have trouble communicating and, and exhibit some of these same symptoms that overlap on the autism spectrum. So people categorized it as the same thing going back many years. But next, let's look at the next term we just talked about, cybernetics. 
And people think of cybernetics and they think of robotics and things like that. So that's part of it. But what people need to understand is cybernetics actually what it is, is this is an interdisciplinary study of holistic systems. So this looks at whole systems. It takes a whole systems perspective on things, whereas our standard education these days is they break up our subjects. You know, they break up what we learn into these separate subjects in little short time periods. So you have like, say, a 40 minute science class and then you have math and then and you have social studies and English, things like that. So what this does is this is by design. This breaks up whole thoughts into different subcategories and keeps people kind of confused, really, when it comes down to it. Whereas cybernetics is opposite of that. This takes a whole systems approach. Look at things. That's what cybernetics is. Now, the Macy Foundation, back in 1942, they had an initial meeting between people from many different disciplines who came together to work on some common problems. And they hit it off so well that they decided after the war was over, and we're talking about World War II, that they would get back together and discuss things again. Now, this is what happened. So the Macy Foundation funded this, and they had these conferences that came about starting in 1946, and they're known as the Macy Conferences. People could look this up and see. So what this is is they formed this cybernetics group. So these people came together from their various disciplines that they studied under, and this was a continuation of operations research from World War II. Now, what this was is this was like logistical strategies and stuff like that that they used for wartime to figure out the best ways to place resources. So they looked at things from a whole systems perspective at that, too. So these people came together from these many varied disciplines, some of them being things like anthropology and, you know, computer science, things like that. So they came together in these conferences starting in 1946, funded by the Macy Foundation and where they went from there is many different ways. The most notable thing that came out of these Macy conferences was the start of the development of artificial intelligence. And we're going to look at that little sidetrack here later. But for right now, we're going to turn back towards autism. Now, one of the people that was involved in this cybernetics group, his name was Gregory Bateson. And this is where the groundwork was started for the study of what causes these different symptoms in schizophrenia and autism, because at that point they were studying it under the category of schizophrenia. So he tried to come up with a theory of what causes schizophrenia. So he looked, had a couple different ideas, and they went ahead and did a bunch of studies on people with schizophrenia and children that they considered to have schizophrenia, which actually their symptoms sound more like autism, but they studied these people and Gregory Bateson came up with a theory that he called double bind. And what this was is this theory was that these children had these symptoms because of the way their mothers treated them. This never really panned out, though, in their research. It was a good theory, but there wasn't enough to really back it. So given over time, they decided that it wasn't just a social factor involved with this, that there had to be some physiological cause of schizophrenia. Later on, this laid the groundwork for the cybernetics people to look at, and they discovered that this physiological cause of these symptoms in people relates to calcium neuronal channels. So a dysregulation in calcium neuronal channels is what causes these symptoms, particularly the autism symptoms in children. So with that, they discovered that this is what causes it, 
as kind of a general overview, this dysregulation of these calcium neuronal channels. So they started doing some experiments to see could they reproduce these effects in a lab. And lo and behold, they could reproduce them in a lab. So that also shows me that they were on track early on to find a way to try to reverse these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting history. And you mentioned autism as a spectrum disorder, which we know, but it's also very unusual because usually these things are a you have it or you don't type of diagnosis. And you've also mentioned this wide range of variation. Does this suggest some sort of field testing to you? Because if they had reproduced some of this in the lab, you would think it would be on the decline, not the not the rise. And you also mentioned differences in certain effects and trends and data. And I assume this is kind of the the point in which we see things start to go a pretty dark direction. Right. And that's kind of the, you know, the, the viewpoint I'm coming from with this. I don't have any direct evidence to say that somebody is purposely trying to engineer this in a certain direction, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to that. One thing in particular that I nearly fell out of my chair when I read the first time was a paper that talked about what they termed autism without intellectual impairment. And that's the term that they're using. That's what they're looking for. They're trying to engineer that. So that's very suggestive in and of itself. I couldn't believe it when I read that. And this is what they seem to be working towards. Now, my opinion is they've been experimenting with different substances to see what they could do to cause some of these effects and try to not cause the more severe symptoms of what you would consider of the, the lower end of the autism spectrum and more towards the higher end because I saw one study that suggests that up to 60% of all people on the autism spectrum have some sort of savant skills. So that's a very telling thing in and of itself too. So if they're trying to engineer like these higher functioning forms of autism, these Asperger's type symptoms with the savant skills, that says something. And this, this has a direct tie to artificial intelligence and people don't realize it. A lot of the same people that were in the, at the ground floor for the research into this Bateson project and the different things that stemmed from it were also involved with artificial intelligence development. Mm. And what they found is that autism intelligence and artificial intelligence, they're kind of based on the same thing. They use a model called the VPR model of general intelligence. And what this is, is this is the verbal, perceptual, and image rotational model. And this is primarily like a form of visual intelligence or spatial intelligence. And people on the autism spectrum have a higher spatial intelligence than neurotypical people. And this is a lot of what artificial intelligence was designed after, was designed based on this model. So when it comes down to it, you could say that artificial intelligence is modeled after autistic intelligence. And that's why the transhuman thing ties into this. Mm. Interesting. Yes, with transhumanism, a lot of times it seems like we're talking about two different things, because on one hand, it seems to be the elite's pipe dream of immortal life, to download their consciousness into some machine vessel, which is not how I think consciousness works. I think it's kind of a stupid thing to try to do, to be honest. But I can understand the desperation to live forever. And then the other thing is what they have prepared for us, which is 
to make us these mechanical drone type people. So, you know, just that transhumanist term seems to represent several different things, wouldn't you say? Oh, it definitely does. I mean, it's got a broad range of meaning to different people. But basically what they're looking to do is they want to merge the minds of men with machines and transfer it into a cloud consciousness of sorts. So uh, they see this as being a very real possibility. And when you consider that many of the scientists and researchers who are working on this, this whole idea, they view consciousness as being nothing more than a mathematical algorithm. And you could look up any number of studies on this or, or different papers on this. They talk about how consciousness is the byproduct of nothing more than an algorithm. So if that's the case, they re really believe, like very sincerely, that they could transfer their consciousness into a computer. So if these people think it could happen and are going to try for it, this is what they're they're looking for for this immortality. Now, this this sets aside the spiritual concerns of these type things. So, you know, I, I kind of agree with you. I think it's really a dumb idea. There's definitely, from my viewpoint, a spirit realm around us that needs to be considered in these things. So, you know, where do they go with it? And that's what we're looking at. But primarily the transhuman movement right now, they want to be able to merge their minds with machines and live forever. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, and sometimes we think about the merging of the mind with the machine as a literal thing. And to some, like Ray Kurzweil, it really is. But if you look at the way people are addicted to their smartphone and how the smartphone dictates the behavior, I mean, we're already merged. And the more you can have the mind be a reaction to things that are happening with a smartphone or a computer, the more you can track surveil the more you can influence and we're seeing it all the time that people are just staring at these screens and their day-to-day -day interactions or their day-to-day -day decision making is reactionary based on what a screen shows them and so it is quite scary and maybe to say merge is like i mean we are already there it doesn't have to mean that you're literally putting your head inside a computer it's more about influence and just complete, detailed, minute control to the individual level, and we're kind of there. Right, and I tend to agree with you in that facet. It's just one step of the Overton window away from uploading your consciousness into a machine. Mm -hmm. That's what their end game is. That's what their goal is. They want to be able to merge all the minds of men together online into you know, this kind of collective consciousness of sorts. It's like the Borg mentality. It's it's not a good thing. But we are partway there, and some of these futurists and stuff will argue that we're already cyborgs because of, you know, our interaction with the phones, that the only thing is, is its connection speed is what's the only major difference right now. Mm. So once they have your mind directly linked to the Internet, there you go. I mean, then then it's, you know, data transfer at the speed of thought. <laughs> right now it's an input output game that's what they say it's it's all about input output speed that's the only major thing that they're working on we're at quite a scary place in the timeline but you know i had mentioned in the intro that this seems to be an ancient esoteric or spiritual agenda at its core you mentioned that just a moment ago as well help us flesh out that connection for people who maybe don't see it yet how does this harken back to ancient and spiritual philosophies 
All right. Well, basically, in my first book, The Alchemical Tech Revolution, I outline seven basic hermetic principles, which most of our sciences are based upon, and people don't realize that. Our modern sciences are all based out of these ideas, these alchemical ideas. And the thing is, is our technology we have now, a lot of it has been twisted. It's a twisting and inversion of natural law, the way these things operate. So this is a complete inversion of how these technologies can work and should work to kind of coincide with nature, whereas they're using these technologies to replace nature with something completely artificial. And that's where we're coming from. A lot of these ideas stem back from the ancient mystery schools, from the old natural laws and, you know, different alchemical sciences. These things have been brought forward into the modern era, and they've kind of been perverted into something that they really shouldn't be, but that's what the people in control are pushing. And a lot of this stuff, it's all about producing an artificial system that's completely controllable by those few at the top of the power pyramid. That's what they're looking for, a total panopticon control grid. So in order to do that, they can't control nature. So what they plan to do is replace nature with something totally artificial. And that's where this whole transhumanism tie comes in. It's not just going to be man merging with machine. They're merging everything, all of nature with machines. And this could be seen going on around us from the chemtrail spraying to the way that they're modifying foods genetically all the way down the line. This is the ultimate plan. Everything's going to be tied into the Internet of Things. This is what it's all about. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's this weird techno-terraforming, and I've had some guests suggest that they're preparing the environment for something else to come in, and that could mean something completely on the outside of our system, or it could mean that people who don't go with the program and don't alter themselves sufficiently enough, they might suffer, because this environment they're crafting is not suitable for biological life. It's suitable for the techno life they're looking to create. So if you don't go with the program, you get damaged the most, and then they can basically, through that process, remake man in their warped image. Right. That's a good description of it. It's a two-phase plan, actually, what they're actually trying to pull off. The primary purpose of the plan is transhumanism. The merging of man with machines to become God, essentially. That's what they want. These people at the top of the power structure, they want to become God and they want to be able to have control of everything. Along with that, the secondary purpose behind this whole campaign is basically to call the population. It's a population control thing. It's amazing how all this stuff ties together, like all these different rabbit holes that I've gone down. It all ties together into one overarching thing. And this is the transhumanist movement. That's the thing that underlies, you know, all of these other various so-called conspiracies going on. It's all about transhumanism. When it comes down to it, at the end of the day, it's all about transhumanism. And that's the direction our society is being steered. Right, right. And also, I want to ask you this. So when it comes to the theories of autism that are in the literature, you talk about two, the extreme male brain theory and the Neanderthal theory. What's important to know about these? How do they relate? Okay. Basically, they relate in a lot of different ways, actually, because it's kind of been shown that they believe Neanderthals had higher testosterone levels 
than, you know, modern humans. So when you look at that tie compared to the extreme male brain tie, this kind of would show to be so. And there's also been some testing done, different studies that show that if a woman has high fetal testosterone levels when she's carrying the baby, it, the baby has a higher chance of developing autism. And there's been different genes identified, which they relate back to early modern man breeding with uh, interbreeding with Neanderthals. And they think this relates to autism. And it has to do a lot with spatial intelligence, this kind of thing, which relates back to this whole VPR model of intelligence again that they use to develop artificial intelligence. And another interesting correlation with that is, I think it was a year or two ago, there were some mainstream stories coming across the news that they were talking about growing Neanderthal brains in a lab to make robots with. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that, but that is quite wild. Yeah, it's, it's, people could look it up. It was, uh, I think it was about a year, year and a half ago. They had multiple ones of these articles out where they were talking about engineering Neanderthal brain cells in a lab to use to power crab-like robots. So that's an interesting thing right there. I mean, it doesn't get much more transhuman than that, than engineering, like, say, a Neanderthal brain to control a robot. So, <laughs> I mean, that that's just an interesting crossover link with this stuff. But basically, I kind of see how this whole Neanderthal theory of autism could tie together with this extreme male brain theory of autism. And what this is, is this extreme male brain theory of autism. This claims that people on the autism spectrum have a more masculine type brain than neurotypical people. And this relates to things like organization and skills like that, whereas they consider more feminine traits to be being able to socially interact, social interaction skills and stuff like that, they consider to be a more feminine trait. Whereas things like organizing and, you know, keeping order and mechanical things, things like that, that tends to be a more masculine trait. So they see this by and large with a lot of people on the autism spectrum, females as well as males. So that is a plausible theory and there is some evidence to back it up for what autism could relate to. Right. It is so interesting. And you also draw links in the book between autism and gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria and transgenderism is definitely wrapped up in transhumanism. And it starts to get a bit thorny in this area. But to quote the book again, you write, Recently, the Tavistock Center was forced to admit a high prevalence of autistic clients at its clinic for transgender children. Nearly one-third of all the children being treated at the clinic had some form of autism. Does this indicate that the Tavistock Center was taking advantage of youths with clear mental health challenges who are experiencing some confusion that the chaos of day-to-day -day life can bring to people on the spectrum? Or is there a legitimate link between autism and transgenderism? And that surprised me, but it's so true that it might be hard to form a conclusion around that because you just don't know which came first, the association or these think tanks trying to force the association. But just that term, transgender children, I don't know. It's it's a big thorny soup. But what are your thoughts on that connection and what happened in this situation with the Tavistock Center? Well, basically, nothing really came about with the Tavistock Center about this. It was shown that 
a large percentage of these children being treated at this Tavistock Center were on the autism spectrum, and they hadn't initially reported that. So that's a cause for concern in and of itself. But there's a definite link here between autism and transgenderism. And I think a lot of it has to do with the same thing going on. They're tinkering with our brain chemistry when it comes down to it. So with that being said, I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility that people on the autism spectrum have a higher prevalence of transgenderism. It's definitely something that's been looked at in several different research studies, and there have been some correlations drawn to it. But it's one of those gray areas, once again, Greg, where, you know, it's it's hard to say, is there really something more to it or not? But I think this has a direct correlation to this whole extreme male brain theory of autism, though, too. Mm -hmm. So from there, I mean, you could look at, you know, there, there's another agenda going on concurrently with the autism agenda. And this is the transgender agenda. And this relates to something called post-genderism. So if you want to touch on that, we could go ahead and touch on that. Uh, sure, let's talk about it. Okay, post-genderism. Basically, what this is, is this is a plan to end gender differences, to end gender, binary gender. And they're working towards this right now. And, you know, this could be considered to be synonymous with transhumanism because they see technology as the tool that they could use to bring this about. So they want to end gender and make gender kind of a spectrum thing where people could be whatever they want. And this, once again, correlates to the whole transhuman notion of being able to upload your consciousness into a computer. And that way you could exist in whatever kind of vessel you want. So it's kind of an anything goes mentality. They want to end gender altogether. Hmm. Well, it's kind of one of those things that you do need to get back into those ancient esoteric worldviews or spiritual models for what our reality even is but you don't have to go too far down the occult rabbit hole to start finding this idea that we live in a world of duality on this plane and the elite occultists want to collapse that into one it's the template we saw on 9-11 the two towers are collapsed and then they raise one single tower maybe this is the attempted union of the spiritual and the physical realms but the argument that's being made is that seemingly this template is also being applied to gender and sexuality. Right. That's a perfect description of it. And that's that's the whole thing. And this is kind of a perversion of the ancient alchemical roots of this whole idea. They're trying to, like I said, end gender and they're doing it in an artificial way, whereas, you know, a lot of the ancient, I believe it's the Buddhist traditions and things like that kind of lean towards trying to remove gender as a thing that motivates people. And, you know, this stems back to some ancient esoteric ideas as well, and it's all based on the, the uh, hermetic principle of gender. So this is a perversion of natural science in order to create something artificial and more controllable, and that's what it's about. And while we're kind of talking about the spiritual side of things, you actually have a question that you put boldly in your book and you say, what spirit dwells in the temple of transhumanism? And I'm curious, what spirit do you think is dwelling in that temple of transhumanism? Well, I don't think it's going to be the spirit of a human per se. <laughs> That's the whole thing. I mean, you have to wonder, even if people succeed in being able to transfer their consciousness online, 
into a computer, is that really going to be them, per se? Or is that just going to be an artificial replication of them? Does their spirit move on? That's the good question. Right. These are all questions that we just don't have the context for because we don't even really understand our environment the way they used to. Right. And that's the whole thing. A lot of this stems down to what is consciousness? And that's the question that has troubled mankind from time immemorial. <laughs> and I believe the ancient alchemical sciences and natural sciences had a better understanding of what consciousness is than our modern science does. And our modern science is trying to create an artificial type of consciousness. You know, in creating this artificial type of consciousness, would it also be creating an artificial type of spirit, per se, powering this consciousness? Because my viewpoint is I believe consciousness is an energy field. It's not so much a physical thing attached to your body. Right. You know, most of these scientists and stuff that are looking at these transhumanist ideas think of it, like I said earlier, as nothing more than the byproduct of a mathematical algorithm. They see consciousness as being nothing more than a byproduct of the electrical workings of your brain and your body. Hmm. And, you know, I, I've done some research and looked at some things that suggest that consciousness is an energy field that exists around you, that your consciousness lives on after we die. A lot of these people don't believe that. <laughs> Agreed. Yes. They need to do a little DMT and then try to tell me that you can bottle the mind into some computer because when you do something like that, the experience that at least was true for me is that, whoa, things are way more complex than I ever thought. And this requires a lot more study and a lot more attention than we're putting on it. But it is curious that there is a spiritual tie-in to all this stuff. And yet the two big companies, Apple, I mean, this is essentially the forbidden fruit. And Android, this is essentially the game plan. <laughs> right. And that's my biggest concern is they completely ignore the spiritual side of things with this whole transhumanist push. This is nothing more than, you know, the pushing of hyper-materialism. Mm -hmm. That's what their viewpoint is. It's a hyper-materialistic viewpoint. Yes, I like that phrase for it. And so I do know people whose children are suffering from autism, but they aren't conspiratorial thinkers. And I would never broach this sort of stuff with them. But I am curious to ask you, as a parent of two kids on the spectrum, who is also aware of the big conspiracy, what do you see from your firsthand personal experience with your children and what they go through in the medical system that others might not get from being on the outside or even just from reading a book like yours? Okay, well, one of the important aspects that I could point out about this whole thing is, first of all, as much as they deny it, there's just this undeniable link between vaccines and autism. As much as they come up with these studies that say, you know, that the vaccines don't cause autism, and these studies they come out with, the data is so skewed and just cherry-picked that it, it's ridiculous. And I could demonstrate that in a lot of these different studies and show you just where they had skewed the data to show what they wanted to show. But that's beside the point. But what people re need to really realize is there's an undeniable link for the past 30 years between vaccines and autism, as much as they deny it. They're definitely the major cause of autism, in my view. It could be shown outright that ingredients in vaccines, particularly 
aluminum adjuvants that they put in the vaccines could cause these kind of neurological disorders in people. It's been shown in many different studies, aluminum nanoparticles especially, and that's what people don't realize is a lot of these newer vaccines that came out in recent years or the ones that they manufactured more recently use nanoparticulate aluminum in them. And this could freely cross the blood-brain barrier if the size of the nanoparticles is under 200 nanometers. So this is going on, and this is causing a type of encephalitis in people's brains, which kind of correlates to the, the onset of autism symptoms. So I think this is what's going on. These are causing a starter function for autism in people. And it's a synergistic thing because, like I had stated earlier, there's aluminum in everything. It's in the air, it's in our food, it's in the water. There's no avoiding it. Right. And it's so prevalent that you'd think it was consciously placed there. Otherwise, it just seems like way too much. But even beyond the contraction or the diagnosis of autism and the delivery method of it, do you see other things in the lives of your children? Because it's got to be plagued with constant doctor visits, constant drugs, constant monitoring. Are you seeing things in that part of the process from, you know, your son's diagnosis at three to his current age of 10? What in there has you skeptical? Is that where you started to get the wheels turning about things like field testing or researching different data and trends amongst different groups? Yeah, it's definitely played a factor in how my research has gone down. We've been through the gamut with my son in particular, with a lot of different things. He had such severe ADHD that it was very taxing on us, and we couldn't find a doctor that would help us because basically at that time, even though they claim they could diagnose autism as early as 18 months of age, most of the people on the autism spectrum don't get diagnosed until they start school. And that's one of the things we tried to reach out and get help for him when he was young. And they told us, come back when he starts kindergarten. We could not get help. And that's, that's a struggle a lot of people who have children with autism deal with. They know early on that there's something wrong, but they can't find anybody that will help them in the medical field. Or they can't find resources to help them. And it's frustrating and it's hard and it really, you know, it wears on you as a parent. Also, there's a lot of different things that people don't realize that, that happen along with autism. Most kids on the autism spectrum also have a different kind of gastrointestinal disorders and things along with it as well. Mm -hmm. And this is where Andrew Wakefield's work came in because that's what he was looking at was the gastrointestinal end of it. And they ostracized the poor guy for coming to the conclusion that, hey, there's some kind of a link here. And a lot of it does have to do with gut health. So there are some supplements and stuff that have helped my son. I would recommend people, if you have a child on the autism spectrum, it doesn't hurt to try things like omega-3s. It doesn't hurt to try something like a methylfolate of some sort. CBD oil has a lot of, uh, a lot of potential with the use with kids with autism. There's many different things out there, and there's a lot more help now than there was at the time that we were trying to get him diagnosed and get him help. There's just so much more available online now that you could find freely. Back then, there wasn't as much out there. Like It was very difficult to find anybody who knew what in the world was going on or anything that could help. But right now, there's a lot of resources out there that could help. So 
I want to let people know that, that there's hope with a lot of this stuff. There's a, a lot more help out there now than there was in the past. It's got a lot more attention now than what it has in the past. So, yeah, I've, I've kind of seen a lot of different things with kids being on the spectrum that I don't think any family should have to deal with. It gets very costly. Like you're paying a lot of out-of-pocket money for trying different supplements and things like that because most of the doctors, all they want to do is put them on, say, like an ADHD med or something like that. They put them on psychoactive drugs, mm -hmm. and that's all they want to do, and then just monitor them. And they don't deal with it day in and day out like the parents have to. And that's something that's that's kind of a struggle for people because unless you have a child on the autism spectrum, you don't really know what it's like to live with autism. You know, even the doctors and the people that are, are professionals that deal with them in clinical settings and stuff like that, that know the condition inside and out. They don't know, unless they have a child of their own on the autism spectrum, of what it is to deal with it day in and day out. Jesus, man. I, and I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but that's why we're issuing a warning while people have some time left. And I hope people use it wisely. But this has been quite a ride, and I think we're just about to pull back into the station here. But I mentioned in the intro how this research journey for you started when you had an unexplainable UFO sighting. I'm curious if you could tell us that story before we go and maybe give us your assessment on how that phenomenon might relate somehow, if at all. Okay. Well, growing up as a kid, I, I always had these kind of weird paranormal type experiences and stuff growing up. I had a lot of different ones. And I was always kind of interested in that kind of stuff from a very early age on. So when I got a little bit older, I kind of backed away from all that stuff and didn't really look into it. That is until one night I was driving home from my mother's house at the time and I had my oldest son in the car with me. And as we were coming over the mountain, we looked up and we saw this weird, very slow moving, square shaped craft flying overhead. And it was definitely metallic. It had a white light on each corner and one big red light in the center. And it floated overhead, and it was only maybe 30 feet above the treetops. And it, it just drifted overhead silently, very slowly. So uh, since I had that encounter, and my son had witnessed it with me, you know, that kind of validated me a little bit with seeing it. I kind of got back into researching UFOs and stuff again, because it renewed my interest in it. So from there, that's kind of where I went down all these many different rabbit holes and, and found a lot of the things that I found. It's interesting how all these conspiracy-type topics, I hate using that term so much because, you know, they try and paint us as being a bunch of goofballs, but all these different things interrelate in a lot of different ways on a lot of different levels. I tend to agree, and I can see how you would research UFOs and end up in esoteric sciences and Nazi secret programs and mind control. And I'm just curious, do, do you think that the thing you saw in the sky or these experiences that people have, do you think it relates to the stuff we've been talking about today, other than the fact that it's also secret? Is there a branch on the big machine's tree that is using this technology or facilitating these sometimes almost religious experiences for people? Well, there's definitely something there. I would say my impression of what I saw at this point, 
I would say it's definitely a man-made technology. And my assessment looking back at it from now is I would speculate that it was most likely some type of a surveillance platform. That's my view of what it was. Mm. Many of these things do tie back into ancient esoteric sciences, though, too. And that's definitely how I kind of got involved in that. I sometimes tell people I accidentally became an expert in occult philosophy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I never intended to. But uh, yeah, I mean, just looking at a lot of these things, it's weird how it all ties back into this stuff, into these different metaphysical ideas and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I love a good UFO sighting story, whatever they are. But also before we go, give the good people the info they might need to keep tabs on your work or get the books. I don't think the autism epidemic has released quite yet, has it? Yeah, it released in the middle of April. It's available oh. now on Amazon. It should be available anytime now in the other book retailers. It usually takes a couple of weeks before it hits them, but that's available now. My other book, The Alchemical Tech Revolution, is available anywhere you can buy books. I can be found on Facebook, on my Facebook page called Files from the Conspiratorium. Or if anybody wants to contact me directly, I can be reached at alchemicaltechrevolution at gmail.com. Those are basically the only platforms I really, really have that I work from. So It's a catch-22 to have to deal with these platforms to promote your work. And then also, in the work, advise people to avoid these platforms. I get it. It's the, it's the struggle every day. Well, my view on it is I'm going to use these tools until they make them no longer viable for my use. So it, it's, you know, I'm kind of using their system against them, and that's how I view it. Cheers. <sighs> right on. Well, I'm sure I speak for most of the listeners when I say that it can't be easy to have these things affecting your family so strongly. And we hope for the best when it comes to your children and the lives ahead of them. Thanks for doing all the work that you have done and for sharing it with us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Greg. I really appreciate it. You got it. And take care out there. Blessed be the fruit, higher side chatters. How we feeling? I hope we like today's show. I know it's a thorny one at times, but I also think these topics are worthy of a conversation. I can see how some people could feel that a few things here might be offensive or insensitive, and that is why I think the context of Wayne's personal life and the background with his children is crucial to getting into this material properly. I know it makes me way more comfortable. You know, we can actually have empathy for people that are affected by something and investigate the likelihood that that something is organized and intentional, especially if it's trending at a very alarming rate. A lot of dark agendas can hide behind the uncomfortability of having the conversation, so we definitely never want that. So big thanks to Wayne for putting himself out there and doing the research that makes a case based on data and personal experience rather than hyperbole and rhetoric. Not always an easy thing to find in 2019. I do respect both of his books a lot, and it's always nice when we can cover more than one thing in a conversation, especially when they do sync up together so well. And isn't it just a bit too weird how a lot of these threads seem related? It's like a movie where you can see how several storylines are going to tie together way before they actually do. 
And it's definitely a big concern. Autism, vaccines, 5G, glyphosate, AI, transhumanistic themes, social media. It's a lot. And I do want this show to be about more than this single narrative and having every road lead to transhumanism. But it's getting harder to find roads in the conspiracy culture that don't lead there. Especially if you're not a flat earther or a QAnon advocate. But I do think in the back of our minds, a lot of us see this technocratic digital culture as a sort of runaway train. And we see it moving so fast, and we aren't even getting time to process it fully. And it's already consuming so much, you know, so much of our time, our habits, our attention, our purchases, our social interactions. How could you not at least be on guard? Obviously, it's not all bad. I should be exhibit A for that. I'm not trying to boast, but I also don't want to sound like some kind of hypocrite. But surprise, surprise, a lot of things in life aren't just good or bad. Some things, especially something so big, is going to be a lot more complex than those two categories. But maybe we need to forge and maintain connections that are more direct rather than facilitated by some third-party platform like Facebook or YouTube or even Patreon. Every one of those platforms launches, explodes, then gets greedy and wants to be as broadly accepted as possible, so they start policing their platforms. Seems counterintuitive to me, but I guess largely for the sake of advertisers and on behalf of Big Brother. And it's no different from building entire shows around the ad breaks. Entertainment, I guess, has always just been a catalyst, a vehicle, to get your attention on something that you wouldn't pay attention to otherwise. And a good show is defined by how many pills and Ford trucks they sell during the commercial break. And our modern era is just another more sophisticated phase of that. But as far as THC, yeah, we did have another old show removed from YouTube since we last spoke. This is four in the last 30 days. I'm not worried about it, but you should know that it happened. And I'm going to post shows on YouTube as long as I can as a funnel to get people to know about the podcast and then hopefully start getting it directly through an RSS feed or the site itself, or better yet, sign up for Plus. But the shows being on YouTube are really just me casting out another line into the digital sea while I still can. I'm sure we'll eventually get some people to put big money into building platforms that straight up commit to free speech from day one. They just have to be as functional as the big five, and then we'll be over the hump. But that said, I hope you like today's show. Tomorrow, the 20th, is our next joint session, 7 p.m. Pacific time. I'll post the link everywhere I can, but hopefully some of you will have the time to sit down, drink a little drink, smoke a little smoke, and take the THC stage with your own interesting theories or stories or experiences or whatever. Always free for anyone to tune in live or call in, and then it's archived for Plus members. Also, the new website is almost here. The Plus website will be going away, of course, because we are transitioning to a combination of one website, and that is just going to have to be the HiresideChats.com because it would be weird the other way. But stay tuned for that and how it's all going to work, hopefully completely seamless for you. 
Of course, if you liked the first hour today, consider signing up to hear the second hour of the show and every show. We've actually had a huge surge in new signups since we had David Icke on. Welcome to all those people. It is so much appreciated. I had a really stress-free week. Quite enjoyable to see those numbers going up. So welcome to the club. I hope you stay around for a while. In today's show with Wayne, it did actually jive quite well with a lot of the topics we talked about with David, but we discussed in the Plus show here how Wayne sees the medicines and doctor visits in his children's lives actually advancing towards the transhumanistic goal. We talked about field testing, this desire to increase savant qualities and decrease the less desirable aspects of the condition of autism, the social engineering component and where we see that with Sheldon and even Bran the Broken. And then we got into some stuff from his first book, like computer brain interfaces and multidimensional portals, how blockchain technology serves the agenda in the medical space, breaking reality with quantum computers, gaming addiction, and M-Worlds. M-Worlds was the mind-blower of the day for me. Crafting entire holographic realities and basically shadow banning people from the true reality and quarantining them off in these simulated M worlds. Quite a trip indeed. Big thanks again to Wayne for bringing the heat and having the stones, and I'll see you guys next time. Your move, cybernetics, psychopaths, transhumanistic technocrats, and engineers of the autism epidemic. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can. To ask you a question. I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep till you slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this.
life oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung fu? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway. It's a scary dark world.